We're a few months into the podcast now, and it's gaining a lot of momentum. It's been fantastic to hear from you guys on Twitter. Listenership is going up quickly. It's, this show's been growing a lot faster than I expected, which is amazing. But I'm still always just, you know, kind of talking into the void. Like, there's there's nobody around me in the room right now. So I don't exactly know what it is you guys want to hear. So the more feedback I get, the more I can tune the content here to be what you guys want to hear, what you guys will understand. And, and this next episode is something I was really personally excited to do. And I have no idea how helpful it's going to be to you guys because I'm not exactly sure who's out there yet. And the best thing that you could do right now for me is jump over to Twitter and come find me at Stallman and just send me a message about what you found helpful in recent episodes or what you'd like to hear more about in the future. So this next episode is something I've been really personally interested in. And um, I'm curious if it's going to be helpful for you guys too. It's something I find really important. And that's just the technology that uh, we and I use to create the stuff that I do. So this is a show meant for creatives, people that make stuff, but most of the things we make now are pretty technology dependent. Like the amount of stuff we can make or the way that we make it or the way that it turns out is really heavily dependent on the tools that we have access to. It's not like painting or drawing where you could kind of pick up anything and smear it around and make something beautiful. If you have the talent, you really need to use the technology that is available to you and the results are shaped by what that technology is. And for me, that tech uh, usually comes from Apple a lot of the time. Um, this isn't a Apple show. I hope that it, whether you use Android or PC, that there's something useful for you here. But to me, my ecosystem is built around Apple products. And that's not to say that they're the only good options out there. There's lots of great computers, lots of great phones, but it's what I grew up on. I've been using it for a long time, and I especially prefer their uh, operating systems. Um, both iOS and macOS are just what I like to use to get things done. And this has been an interesting year for Apple's relationship with creative professionals. They started off kind of rocky a, a little more than a year ago. There was the new MacBook Pros that were released to kind of lukewarm uh, reception. They have the touch bar, which I'm sure you've all seen by now, and all USB-C interfaces so that some of your older hardware may not immediately be compatible. It needs to have adapters added to use it. And um, there's also some limitations in terms of the RAM that you can put into them, um, just sort of less customizability. Uh, they're a bit smaller. Like there's all these things that are moving more towards the what you might think of as being consumer, but we're going to talk a bit about that today, about the, the difference between professionals and consumers and how those two are really blending together. Like there isn't one professional anymore. You really can't say that only high-end video production is a professional or, or high-end photography. But because only Apple makes Apple hardware, I kind of have to rely on them to put out what I need. And I know there's a lot of other people that are in this boat, kind of waiting to see what Apple does next, to see where they're going to go next with their hardware decisions. Earlier last year, when the MacBook Pro was announced, I was actually, I, I was considering looking at Windows PCs for a little while. I shopped around a bit. I talked to some friends that had switched to PC recently, especially friends that were doing uh, high-end VFX work like uh, Chris Dowsett, who was on the podcast earlier. And their response is, unless you need it, like unless you really need 10 graphics cards and uh, you know just a super powerful water-cooled PC, 
don't do it because you end up spending a lot of extra time just kind of babysitting the hardware and the software and making sure it works. And I don't have time for that. That's part of professional work is that you just need to get going and turn it on and get things done. So that's a huge reason why I'm not I'm not even exploring any of the PC stuff. I'm sure it works great for you. Uh, for me, it doesn't seem like the right solution right now. So I wanted to bring on a real Apple expert, somebody that knows even more than I do about it. Like I'm pretty nerdy about Apple, but Rene Ritchie just devotes his life to it. You may know him as a guest on MacBreak Weekly or his site, iMore, where there is just infinite information about anything you need to know about Apple. And recently he launched his daily podcast, Vector, which is also a YouTube channel. So he's putting out a ton of great content and is a source that I've trusted for years and years about Apple news and opinions and just kind of being aware of what they're doing. So let's spend some time today learning about where Apple is now for creatives and where we can expect them to be going in the future. But first, let's talk about where they started. They've been leading the way in both hardware and software for creatives for decades now. So I'd love to know more about how that got started. I think that all sort of goes back to Steve Jobs. I mean, he had some very clear ideas on where computers should be going. And one of them, probably the biggest one, was his relentless desire to just mainstream computing and everything from the Apple II for command line to the Mac for graphical user to the iPhone for multi-touch was an effort to make computers more and more accessible to the mainstream. Uh, But at the same time, he had this love affair for the arts, for calligraphy, uh, for typography, for all of these things that he just wasn't getting from other computers. And he famously audited uh, you know, those classes in college and really wanted, uh, drove his engineers batty in order to get things like typography into the Mac. And I think that appeals sort of his, it's a cliche now, but his melding of technology and the liberal arts really appealed to people who, who also found that stuff important. And those were primarily, in the early days at least, the desktop uh, the desktop publishing people, and then slowly that became the desktop uh, video and desktop music uh, and all the other people. That's how I got hooked into the Apple world is my parents were kind of starting a small business and they were going to be, publishing was going to be a big part of it. It was like a, relating to newspapers and they were sending articles out and uh, kind of being syndicated. So they went out and bought a Power Mac of, uh, I can never remember what number it was at the time, but, uh, and you know, a big laser printer. Sort of digits. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> 6300, whatever. And, uh, you know, it wasn't the best days of Apple, but it was still at that point, like it was the choice if you were going to be laying stuff out and then like printing stuff at home and then also interacting with other printers and stuff. And so like things that I know about it, but only roughly because I was relatively young at the time, is that things like the laser writer and postscript were kind of significant, right? Like um, now you have a bit more of a choice. Like, you you know, you could choose Windows if you prefer it, Mm -hmm. but Apple was innovating a lot of this stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, we, we went from the daisy wheel printers to the dot matrix printers, and then we began to get the laser printers. And Apple wasn't alone. Companies like Commodore with the Amiga were doing a lot of really... I mean, I got my start on video with a video toaster that was integrated uniquely into the Amiga back then. But Apple was the most successful of the sort of avant-garde, next-generation, media-minded computing platforms. And they were the ones that... It's funny to say Apple won out in the face of Windows, but compared to the other <laughs> platforms, Apple no, won true, that yeah. segment. And that might have you know, been one of the things that kept them going, like along with education, that yeah. creatives just stuck with it. I, I was just also checking um, on Wikipedia before this, but uh, the, kind of the history of Adobe as well is really tightly tied to Apple as well. Like with Photoshop and Illustrator were both first 
released on Mac. So like, again, at the time, it's like, that's what you chose. Yeah. If you wanted anything that involved more than just like, if your business was putting words, regardless of how they looked on paper, then it really didn't matter to you. And a DOS box was fine. But if you cared about the presentation of your data in any way, shape or form, then you gravitated towards the Mac. Well, and I didn't understand it at the time, but when I'd switch back and forth between Windows and the way the fonts were treated, which uh, I, I mean, I think was just anti-aliasing more or less, is that what the significant difference was? But they just looked so much better on a Mac that going back seemed like trash. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's almost like going back from Retina to standard displays and those blocky pixels just tore at your eyeballs. Yeah, for for years, people just kind of put it up with it on Windows. I don't yeah. know how. And then a big step um, that uh, I, I remember being a bigger part of my life was was Final Cut, um, yeah. becoming more of a professional platform and really proving itself that, you know, you can edit on a home computer, uh, a, a Hollywood movie. Um, I don't remember, actually. I, I know there was like kind of one groundbreaking real film that was done in Final Cut first. And other people were like, oh, this... This is plausible. Back Mountain was one of them. And yeah. and now, I mean, it's just becoming more and more common, like, uh, it's, especially as independent creation is a bigger thing. But I know a lot of people uh, have been moving more away from Avid. Premiere still has its own chunk of the market, but Final Cut has always been like a real staple. I remember for me, because there were, for some people, there were these dark years of Final Cut Pro uh, ten. Uh, but I remember for me, I, I used iMovie and I used Final Cut and I used Premiere and again, I came from editing on an Amiga, and the timeline was very much integral to me. And then I just remember being stuck in New York one day, and we did a three-camera shoot with uh, Luria Petrucci and a bunch of other people, uh, and I was alone. And they're like, well, you can edit this, can't you? And I made a very uh, frantic phone call to mutual friend, safe solvent, Martin Reich, yeah. saying, what am I going to do? And he said, oh, Final <laughs> Cut Pro Ten. it's so easy. Just click those things, say multi-cam edit, and then you can use the one, two, and three keys and switch between them. And I got it done in like, as, a, as someone who had never done that before, I got that done in about five minutes. And I just felt so empowered by that technology that that's all I wanted to edit with from that moment on. And so at, the, at that point, it was at 10 already, right? This wasn't before? It was, that's when it first yeah. became 10, because if I had to do that in the original Final Cut or in Premiere, it would have taken me hours, even oh, yeah. like, despite the, like, so after the learning curve, it would have taken me hours. And this was literally a five-minute phone call, and then me immediately being able to do exactly what I wanted to do. Well, having an expert like Martin always helps. But I yes. I was at the NAB, uh, the announcement for the, the Final Cut 10 switch, and at the time, it's funny because the room was insanely excited about it. Um, Like everybody was cheering and just like going crazy because it looked really great. And then afterwards there was a bit of a backlash, but I think anybody that did use it, like I jumped over to it from, I guess, what was I using? I was using Premiere, then I went to Final Cut X and I came back to Premiere for a while. And now I'm back to Final Cut 10. But um, there was definitely a group of people that tried it right away and realized this is really fast. Even as a professional used to using bigger like avid or you know the traditional nles final cuts insanely fast like you can just get any edit done much more quickly maybe you can't do everything you can do on on some of the other platforms but uh even today that's it's huge advantages it's just quicker to get things done it's that it's that very subtle difference between power users and empowering users that apple is (laughs) both blessed and burned with where i remember randy ubelos going on stage to announce a new iMovie and he said you know, I, I'm I'm a world-class video professional and I just can't share my vacation footage as fast as I want to. Um, and then him rewriting iMovie from scratch starting that weekend. And it was the same thing with Final Cut is that Apple understands that there's pros out there, but it's a tiny segment of the market. And if they can elevate uh, the sort of the prosumers into, into doing pro-level stuff, then that's a way bigger market. And there is some backlash. I think 
a very small part of it is elitism. It's how dare you steal fire from the mountain and give it to the mere mortals on the ground. Mm-hmm. But then there's always a rebound where people, are, when you start seeing the amazing work that people can do. I mean, Soderbergh is filming with iPhones these yeah, days. It just, yeah. like, the world is changing. I've been really enjoying that lately and experimenting more with that. Like I've been trying to do my Instagram stories as like edited vlogs, basically, on my iPhone. So, well, like I'm shooting it as it's happening and editing it in real time and trying to make something that in the end feels like you know, a real little video production. And even though I can use the bigger software, it opens up a new way of posting content and of creating stuff that just never, ever would have happened before. So even for professionals, it's really enabling. It's a new kind of storytelling that it opens up to you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, So where are we now with all this? Uh, I I mean, this this is when I really started thinking about this topic in general of like, you know, where does Apple sit with creative professionals right now is that the uh, MacBook Pro, the most recent one, had a bit of its own backlash when it was announced. The USB-C took over all of the ports and some of the computers didn't have as many in total. And so you'd need to you know, live La Vida dongle and there's less options for RAM. You can, what, Max 16? Am I, am I right about that? Yeah. And, uh, you know, still relatively limited support for graphics card. But where is that now? Like from when you speak to professionals, how are they feeling about the laptop line right now? Yeah, I mean, so just to back up slightly, Apple has had uh, a divisive few years, I think, in terms of professionals. It went from the 2013 Mac Pro, which was a really interesting idea, basically a three-sided one CPU dual GPU container that ended up putting them in a thermal envelope from which they could never escape Mm -hmm. to the MacBook Pros, which are a radical redesign and very future thinking, but are painful to a lot of people in the present. Um, Two things like, you know, just not updating the Mac Mini for years, which is something that a lot of people used as glue, uh, to quote Alex Lindsay, on, in, in their production um, pipelines. Uh, and that, that creates an incredible amount of frustration. And there are legitimate reasons for a lot of these things. Like Apple and NVIDIA just don't see eye to eye. Apple wants complete control of the graphics pipeline, and NVIDIA wants complete control of the graphics pipeline, and AMD is willing to let Apple do anything they want. So that makes for a much easier partnership. I'd love to hear um, more about that, because it's something that I don't know why, kind of why we're at that state of, of not having NVIDIA. Is it hurdles that we're not going to be able to get past? Like, what are the odds that I'll be able to sort of natively run NVIDIA at any time in the future? How, how deeply entrenched are these fights? They're both completely, they're, what's the right way to put this? They're absolutely insurmountable, but <laughs> ludicrous at the same time. It's just mm-hmm. Apple wants the ability to write directly to the metal of any graphics that they put in their computers, and literally to the metal. They have their own metal infrastructure. They've done an incredible amount of work to be able to basically take the entire computer out of the way and let developers hit directly at the graphics cards for things like VR, uh, where you don't want to intermediate the process at all. Uh, and NVIDIA is, uh, to my understanding, very set in how they want their graphics cards spoken with, you know, and how they want those CUDA cores treated, and the languages that they want to use. And they just won't see eye to eye on it. And it's possible that either Apple or NVIDIA would just change their minds and make nice with each other, or they'll come up with a compromise. But at the moment, both want things that are just simply incompatible with the other. And again, AMD doesn't care. They're like, yeah, here's a card, do whatever right. you want with it. So that makes it super easy for Apple to sort of do what they want to do. 
um, with the graphics. And when you're planning out things like Metal 2, which is a multi-year project, knowing that you can depend on the actual silicon being there for you is huge uh, from a development point of view. Well, and the only parts of uh, Windows hardware I pay any attention to is graphics cards because they're the most exciting thing. I mean, it's, it's the thing that's been moving so quickly and, and NVIDIA has just been, every time there's an announcement, it's actually exciting. Like it gets, yep. the part of me that used to put PCs together in, in college, like that gets excited by seeing what NVIDIA is doing lately. Um, how much are we missing out on as Apple users by, by not having NVIDIA right now? Like, What is the performance difference? There, there's some performance difference, although uh, AMD is incredibly aggressive lately with everything from their Ryzen, uh, you know, Threadripper, all those things. They're really coming after NVIDIA with high performance at lower cost, um, which is incredibly interesting. And we'll see that play out over the next year. But at the same time, like if you're, if you're based on uh, hitting CUDA cores, that's just not open to you through standard Apple channels. Yes, you can get one of the new... Uh, external GPU boxes and use the unsupported uh, beta, I guess alpha, I don't know, drivers and sort of roll it yourself. But it's just is not a mainstream option for you. Do we know where that's going right now? I mean, I've heard a little bit about that they're potentially working on or actually working on uh, third party support or external GPU support. Is that is that real or am yeah, I just I hearing mean, rumors? No, I mean, we'll see. I mean, we'll see. Like nothing, nothing is official until they actually tell you. But I mean, I, I, at the um, iMac Pro demo, they had Cinema 4D there and Cinema 4D was running in the room. They were running two AMD eGPUs and they were saying they were getting better performance out of those than they did out of other manufacturer cars. Yeah. And then they said that they'd had five or six hanging off the box and Apple PR very quickly said, we haven't announced a number yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I mean, so that, that could be the like one of the really big changes, and and none of us know what to expect in the coming Mac Pro. But I sure as heck hope it comes with some software support, some uh, you know, like you say, updated drivers, and just ways to really boost that performance. It's the only big thing that I've to me, it's the biggest thing missing. Like I, I actually am always surprised on how little hardware I can do a lot of things on. Yeah. I think I push computers almost as far as anybody, right? I'm shooting 4K and yep. editing it on the go. And I'm shooting, uh, right now I actually have a uh, Hasselblad H6D 100C, nice. which is 100 megapixels. Like these are enormous. And I'm still able to edit them on my 13-inch 2014 MacBook Pro that doesn't have a dedicated GPU. You know, like I, it, it is a bit slower and yeah, it, that's not optimal. Like when I can, I use my iMac for that. But you can do a lot on these machines because... They, they work well. And especially, like I say, with Final Cut, Final Cut's very, very well optimized. It's, it's incredible, actually, what it can do on the same hardware that Premiere really struggles with. So it's, it's really the very top end and being able to do things quickly as well. So say with 4K video, you really can edit 4K on virtually anything. I mean, um, not, not, not anything, anything recent-ish. And you start running into challenges in uh, stacking a lot of effects on top of it or needing really instant playback response, uh, like really just performance issues, but you can still do it. So in general, I find some of it might be a little exaggerated, like the amount of people that actually need 32 or 64 gigs of RAM may not be as big as as they, <laughs> you know, it's it's not well, everybody. So that's, a, that's the other side of this coin in that Apple doesn't really understand I don't know, maybe the emotional side of that. So for the current generation of MacBooks, that includes the Skylake and the KB Lake version, Apple is using the ultra-low power version of RAM because they want to increase battery life. Uh, but that is not available in 32 
um, gigabytes yet. They they just can't get those chips. And it would have been nice if Apple decided, oh, like we have the very low end version of the MacBook Pro. We'll make a very high end version that has instead of the mobile has a desktop version of RAM, and instead of this has you know more of these components that don't allow for longer battery life. But that's not the primary use case for people who want that machine. They just want basically a movable desktop like the 17-inch MacBook Pro of old, and yeah. they'd be willing to sacrifice battery life for it. But it just it doesn't occur to them that that is an option, so they don't make that machine, and then people are just super angry that they can't get the MacBook that they want. I did have that 17 at one point, and I loved it. It, it got stolen out of my car in Vancouver, though. Oh, so no. It was a battleship. Yeah, oh, yeah. It was, and it, was, it was just great. It was really useful. I mean, I wouldn't go back. Like, I'm happy with, with what I have now. But, um, yeah. Yeah, no, and I, I think that um, maybe some of what they lost sight of, which... Which is strange because they, they, I think they really understood the idea of like a, like a concept car, you know, like yeah. that flagship, because even with the last, the, the trash can Mac Pro, I remember seeing ads in the cinema, like I'd go to the theater and I, I yeah. saw an announcement for it. And clearly they're not trying to get anybody to buy it. They're just trying to remind the world Apple is at the top. You know, you, if you want to get the best computer in the world, it's going to be a Macintosh. And it's strange that they backed away from that to me. Like I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how they kind of lost sight of it for a while, but um, obviously it's something they're thinking about again. And I think your point is is valid. And I think the reason for it is your go- your greatest strength is always your greatest weakness. And Apple's greatest strength is its culture. And they come from this very small team, very focused approach. And you have a handful of people working on any project at any one time. And yeah, there are multiple teams involved, but those teams themselves are very small. And Apple makes these conscious choices. Like they'll say, Yes, displays are important, but we're also doing way more other products than ever before, and we can't do everything, and we don't want to do these things badly, so we're just not going to do them. And so we don't get an update to the cinema display or the LED display or whatever, Thunderbolt display, whatever they last called it. But then you have this horn effect, the opposite of the halo effect, where people start to buy like LG or some other monitor, and then they're not looking at Apple anymore. They're looking at an LG logo, and their, their router is not from Apple anymore. And you start to think, well, I'm buying all these other parts that aren't from Apple. Maybe I should look at the computer that's not from Apple. And I think they started to realize that, which is why they're working on a new modular Mac Pro and a new Pro display. Um, but these are lessons that Apple doesn't make a lot of stuff. So there are lessons that are really painful and really pro- like immediate to the company. The strangest thing to think about when that display got pulled and, and they said, you know, LG, LG is great. Go check them out. Yeah. Is trying to imagine Apple offices that, you know, there's a room full of developers and even, you know, they have, they have photographers and designers yeah. sitting in front of LG logo uh, screens. I mean, that, just that won't work when the Wi-Fi is on. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, no. It, so I, I feel like it was inevitable for them to come back to it because, yeah. you know, they love beautiful things too. I want the thing in front of me to be, <laughs> to be beautiful. And I think that actually touches on another point I was thinking about for why creatives end up on Apple hardware a lot of the time is that it's, um, it's not only what it can do, which right now is becoming less differentiated, you know, definitely less than in the days that we're talking about Adobe being exclusive to the platform or PostScript and laser writers that now, you know, there's almost parody uh, if you don't use Final Cut, uh, now that Aperture is gone as well. The, you can do a lot of the same things on either one. But if you are the type of person to appreciate aesthetics uh, and to want things to be beautiful, the elegance of, of a Mac is is going to attract you. Like, regardless of the feature set, I just don't want the mess of a Windows computer in my life. Yeah, and I think it, it, it sort of harkens back to what 
the whole discussion about there's a discussion recently in the community about the state of Mac apps. And I broadened that to the state of desktop apps. And it's just not an area where we're seeing a lot of innovation or forward thinking anymore. All the biggest, most important apps of the last few years have been mobile first or web first, things like Instagram or uh, Uber or Lyft or Slack. All of those are web first and mobile first apps. And the desktop, as much as some of us loved finely crafted apps that would leverage things like Apple's core graphics and core audio and core animation and uh, Sprite Kit and Scene Kit and all these things that Apple provide so that developers can more easily make great Mac apps. They just don't exist in a world where developers are targeting web and targeting Android and iOS first. And that makes the overall value of the desktop lower, which makes the your ability to sort of transition between desktops higher than ever. Oh, absolutely. And I, I mean, I think about what, what still excites me that's come out recently. And one of the only developers that really comes to mind is like Rogue Amoeba. Um, yeah. I mean, right now I'm using Audio Hijack to record, but they keep putting up things. I'm like, this is something I didn't realize I needed and is actually exciting. Like their soundboard. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, I haven't found a use for it yet, but it seems great. And I'd love to see that with photography. You know, I I haven't seen any photo apps for the Mac that feel like that. Like, oh, this does a new thing that I didn't realize I needed. And now I can do something I couldn't before. And I do keep finding that on my phone. There's plenty of iPhone apps I can recommend like that. But Or that, you know. a, that demo when the MacBook Pro, sorry, when the iPad Pro was announced. And, oh, I'm blanking on the name of the image editor. Um, but you just started painting with deformation masks with your fingers and moved mm-hmm. the wave over here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was, uh, it was just amazing. And, but we saw that on, and yes, it exists for the Mac, but we saw that on the iPad Pro. Can I have a little tangent here of uh, affinity? Sorry. So, what are you going to do with Twitter now? Like, what's your choice of a, a Twitter desktop use going to be? Because I I can't settle on anything now that the official app is gone. You know, uh, confession: I haven't used the official app since uh, Tweety um, went away. Tweety oh, was okay. my Tweety. So, Lauren Brichter, who was on Apple's original Open, he he helped create the OpenGL stack, the graphics language stack for the original iPhone, and then he left. And he made Tweety for iOS, which sort of came out of nowhere, but felt like the Twitter app that Apple would have made. And then he made Tweety for desktop because he wanted multiple uh, account support and no other third-party app offered that at the time. Uh, so he built that and he his company, 8Bits, was bought out by Twitter and that became Twitter for iOS and then Twitter for Mac. Uh, but it, it was very clear that Twitter didn't really care about it. And then TapBots came along. Paul Haddad and Mark Jardine's company. And it was very robot aesthetic at first. And that's gone away since iOS 7 and the more digitally authentic design style took over. But they still made the most uh, Tweety style app. And that's just the way my brain handles Twitter. So I switched to Tweety on iPhone and then I switched to Tweety on, sorry, um, Tweetbot on iPhone. Then I switched to Tweetbot on Mac. And I haven't used the official client in years. And I go to the desktop Sorry, I go to the web or once in a while tweet, uh, Twitter on iPhone just to put in descriptions, uh, accessibility descriptions for photos. Mm. Yeah, see, I think you're lucky because <laughs> so much of what Twitter, of these habits I find are like what you train your brain to feel yeah. like Twitter is. And yeah, that's same thing for me. I, I've been uh, I've been using the official ones, so instead of, you know, the third party. And so I get attached to what they are and then anything else seems kind of wrong or not what yes the, not what the platform is to me um and so yeah i, I don't know how i'm going to adapt yet but i'll find a way <laughs> i'll struggle yeah, someone will it. wrap it up in a someone will wrap it up in a chrome tab and call it an, uh, an electron app and so how do you feel about your imac pro like are you how far are you pushing it do you feel like you ever can really get the fan spinning um how, how has it been for you 
So I have a review unit. Um, I originally wrote my first impressions on the 10 core. Uh, I think it was 10 core two terabyte version um, that Apple was showing off. But the one that I have to review is the eight core one terabyte version. There's something interesting to me. Like, yeah, you can go full out 12 core, four terabyte of RAM. But there's something interesting to me about the base level models on these and to see how survivable they are. And I've been using it and it's been fine. I had to do things like turn off um, all the caching on Final Cut Pro because it was making all those optimized files and it was just destroying the storage right. on the device because I would import you know maybe 200 gigabytes of of video files and it was quickly spinning up 900 gigabytes <laughs> yeah. of optimized files. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the machine is fast enough to handle that without those files. So I turned that off and, and now it's fine. I've gotten it to the point where it complains and asks me to turn off split view every or angles once in a while. Um, but it's been holding up remarkably well. And it's not so much that I notice it when I use it, but I notice it when I go back and try to edit on my MacBook Pro. And suddenly I'm like, why is, why is this taking so long? Oh, yeah. Hmm. I think that touches on one of the, the, the weird issues still there for Final Cut Pro, and that's that um, the default settings don't really acknowledge how much smaller internal drives have gotten. They kind of expect your library to still be sitting in the movies folder, I think, and yeah. then all of the optimized storage still sitting there, and they have no problem creating a ton of of data. So if you don't know how to kind of customize your library settings, um, and you know, it definitely takes some googling. You you can't just uh, click around and, and figure this out. You need a recommended settings to really make Final Cut not take up your entire hard drive. <laughs> um, That's true, and the SSD on. The um, iMac Pro is so ludicrously fast that the minute you move it to anything external, no matter how fast the external thing, like I'm sure if you had a double array Thunderbolt three or or 100 uh, you know gigabit per second Ethernet, like you, maybe you wouldn't notice it. But like standard external storage, just all of a sudden it's oh, I can hear a, do- a drive spooling up. Oh, it's a pl- hit a platter, didn't I? Ah, uh. well, and do you edit internally on it? So you've got it sounds like everything's on the internal drive, you're not uh, moving it out to external until it's getting backed up, I assume? So I, I try to edit uh, natively on the on the machine, because that's always faster, and I have just a little... I'm like that squirrel at the end of Over the Hedge who takes a Joel Cola, and then time slows down, and everything seems like it's taking forever. So I try to edit on the drive. Um, and I know that's dumb, because you know, anything can happen to an internal drive, so I, I do have a couple of backup drives. But I was just filling it... Now, now with the new show, I've got usually three cameras at 4K and I'm Oof, using an, yeah. a multicam clip at 4K and it just it just fills it up the one terabyte too fast. So now I've got it on a four terabyte external drive that's super duper cloning at every opportunity to a backup one because I don't trust those drives at all. Well, if anybody's struggling to figure out what their settings should be, um, I guess just mine as, as a hint in case it's helpful to anybody is that I'll always, uh, I'm editing on an external SSD, which isn't as fast, but uh, since I am usually on a laptop, there is, there's no drive big enough. Like I, my drives are always full. It's, it's not even, I can't even contemplate, keep storing things on it. So I use a uh, Samsung, uh, mine's a T3. Now I think T5 yeah. is the newer one. And um, it, it works very well, especially with Final Cut. And I, I don't create optimized media because I find honestly, even on, like I was saying, how underpowered my 13 inches, it can play back 4K smoothly. Um, mm-hmm. As long as there's not tons of effects, as long as it's more or less clean, it'll it'll just play it back without optimizing it at all. And that's blows my mind because on Premiere, there is 
absolutely no chance. Like if any of you guys are still using Premiere out there, you, you can't. Like Premiere lets you do some more advanced things. It integrates much better with After Effects and with uh, Audition. Yeah. Like I still haven't actually found a great audio workflow now that I've switched back to Final Cut, but it is incredible how much slower it is. Like doing benchmarks when I switched, I was getting, I mean, sometimes like a third of the time to export or if you let the files pre-render, an export that on Premiere will reliably take an hour. Every time I export, it takes a full hour. If it's pre-rendered in Final Cut, it can be five minutes. It's really incredible. It's amazing. And if you have a, it depends on the year that you have. If you have a 2016 Skylake MacBook Pro, it will do H.265 up to 8 bits. And if you have the 2017 model, it'll do um, HEVC. I hate that acronym, H.265, <laughs> yeah. um, up to 10 bits, uh, just hardware accelerated. And I don't believe, maybe maybe uh, Premiere takes advantage of that now. It didn't when last time I checked, but it's just amazing what happens when you let the chipset take over and not have to go through all the software layers. Can you help me understand a bit of like, what do I or, or any other professional uh, working in a creative industry need to know about the new image formats? Um, I mean, there's, they seem really great. Uh, there's also some confusion around them, especially because they require certain kinds of support from different places. But um, is it worth switching away from JPEG on your iPhone right now to uh, HEF or HEVC? <laughs> Evka. Uh, yeah, no. no. So nobody should ever convert. You should never convert from JPEG because they're, they're lossy file formats and there's no reason to take an existing JPEG library and convert it to HEF. Uh, on the video side, what you get with HEVC, most people now use... Uh, Google is different. Google has V6 and V8. But if we're in if we're in the non-Google MPLA MPG MPLA consortium world, then H.264 was the standard format for 1080p content for years. H.265 is the standard for 4K content. And what it does is let you store the about four times the size video in a about twice as good a compression format. Um, and you get 8-bit is the traditional you know, version of it where it's standard color, and 10-bit is the HDR version. So if you're interested in high dynamic range, you want 10-bit rather than uh, 8-bit. Uh, the, the iMac Pro is Skylake because uh, the Xeon platform is still on Skylake, but it's got such ridiculous GPUs that Apple just slaves the GPU in to handle the extra bits. So you shouldn't notice a difference. With um, high-efficiency file format, the Heath version of it, that's a version of H.265-like technologies bundled for images. So right now, for example, if you want to do um, a live photo, if you're one of those three people uh, and you do it with a JPEG, they have to they have to store two separate containers, the JPEG and the movie that goes with it. And if you want to do a depth effect, they just previously they would just store the depth data separately, but now they throw it into the JPEG header. But what Heath lets you do is bundle a bunch of different data sets together. So they're really multiple files, but they present as one file. And that means that you get to store a bunch of extra data about what is in your photographs. And that includes things like uh, motion data or depth data. So it is more efficient. It lets you store more data in a smaller format, but it also lets you uh, just picture data in a smaller format. But it also lets you store all these other forms of data. And we're only seeing the surface of that now. So going forward, I think those things will be more important. Well, do you know what we can expect in terms of being able to write to these file formats other than with our iPhones? Because, you know, Adobe still isn't able to export in it. And and do you know what the roadmap looks like for being able to create those files? So there's sort of two worlds right now. One is that, you know, Apple is not supporting Google's version, which is VP, 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 one of those things. I keep blanking on these, so many acronyms now. (laughs) 
Uh, and Google's not supporting Apple's, which is why we don't have, for example, 4K YouTube um, on, on a lot of Apple stuff right now. But in general, I mean, Adobe's getting better. They now support depth natively. So you load in uh, one of the one of Apple's depth images, and you'll actually get that as a channel, like as an alpha channel. I you can go in there and edit yet. the wow. depth. Yeah, it's great. It's on the, uh, I think two for, it was within the last few months uh, after the iPhone 10 launched, and that's just great because you know no depth map is perfect. Uh, so going in there and being able to change the depth map is really cool. I don't know if they can write to it yet. Maybe not. Um, but it, it will get wider. Um, I think it will get wider and wider adoption. And if Apple does its job right, it should seamlessly transition those to older formats if it detects that you're trying to... Like, it'll, it'll for a variety of reasons, it'll collapse images. Uh, so, for example, let's say you're doing a depth map and you're doing portrait lighting mm-hmm. and you're deliberately... Um, sending like let, let's say you're doing a nudie photo, but like the, the the naughty bits are hidden by the shadows in portrait lighting. It would collapse that so that someone can't just take off the mask and see you suddenly. Uh, so it it takes sort of a privacy first approach. So it'll collapse all that down, and also if it thinks that compatibility isn't there, it'll collapse all that down into a JPEG or into a standard video file format before it it shares them. That's one issue I've run into a bit trying to do uh, use my iPhone to do real video recording that gets integrated into other clips. Is uh, I actually haven't upgraded to High Sierra. I've never waited this long in my life, but I just have been nervous. <laughs> I've just yeah. kind of been too concerned about things working um, and just haven't had any need to experiment with new stuff. So I've, I've just been leaving it. But because of that, I don't have full support of the video files. So I've been using AirDrop to transfer the videos. And so it needs to convert it each time. So, you know, one thing, it's not great that I'm converting it. I'm losing a bit of quality, but I, I can live with it. But the problem is if I have more than a few files, like if there's 10 minutes of video, it will take half an hour <laughs> to transfer those. It's it's really a bit more than the iPhone's ready to handle. So that's kind of a, a current bottleneck until, you know, until I update to High Sierra or until kind of yeah. all of the software is ready for this next step. You can kind of paint yourself into a corner sometimes if you've captured in one format, but your editing hardware and software doesn't support it yet. Yeah, I mean, I, I updated to High Sierra just because I found that so annoying that <laughs> Yeah. Did you run into any issues? Like, should should I be updating now? Uh, is it safe? Yeah. I mean, I've had I've had High Sierra on beta since WWDC, and I haven't had a single problem with it. I know some people have. Um, there were issues with the when Apple rewrote the windowing manager. So some people who used external displays or did specific things with the windowing manager had some issues, uh, and there were some. You know, Apple backtracked on uh, APFS for for hard drives, not for SSD drives. So, But that was transparent to people who weren't on the beta. So uh, I've been on it for, for months and it's been rock solid. There might be specific issues. Always check with your software first. So make sure all the software that you use, they don't right. have specific issues, but otherwise it works really well. So moving forward, what do you want to see from Apple to make it feel like they understand the needs of high-end professionals, you know, people that are pushing hardware to its limits? Like, what are the the boxes that you think need to get checked in both the next Mac Pro and just MacBook Pros and everything? I think, you know, part of it is messaging. Like, you look at what Microsoft is doing with the Surface, and when you look specifically at computer for computer capability for capability, limitation for limitation, the Surface doesn't hold up very well. But because they've been so good at the messaging, and they've got a few nifty features like the tilting screen on the Surface Studio, it generates a lot of of excitement uh, in the creative industry. I think that's sort of what Apple used to famously generate. But I think also Apple Apple has to just deliver things that creatives want. Now, creative professionals doesn't mean what it used to. Once a, and everyone thinks that 
a creative begins at them and ends at the people they admire. <laughs> yeah. So anyone who does less than them is not a professional, but anyone who they really look up to is a super professional. Uh, but that super professional probably doesn't think that that person is a professional, mm-hmm. but thinks like, you know, that the Vincent de Flore is like, is a, like there's, all, there's all these layers to it. So it's like anyone who lives in a village north of me is a northerner uh, <laughs> yeah. sort of thing. Uh, so you have to be careful with that um, because there are people who like developers are very different professionals than uh, a videographer, for example, uh, or a movie maker. And uh, Apple will probably tell you that developers are by far the biggest pro market that they currently have to serve. But there are all sorts of, and audio professionals are different than video professionals, are different than people who do field work. There's so many variety of professionals. But I think sort of doing those things, like making that MacBook Pro that sits on top of the lineup and really does, is willing to sacrifice some of the portability for a lot more power for people for whom that is the most important thing. Apple is the only manufacturer of Macs. And so when whenever they do things like seal up batteries or re- remove ports, they take on the responsibility to update those things. So for example, when they made the MacBook Pro, when they took it away from being the cheese grater tower and made it the, the Darth Vader helmet that was no longer updatable, they took on the responsibility of updating it and they failed desperately at doing it. They didn't even rev the graphics cards. Mm-hmm. Like I, I can take a lot of like there's a lot of reasons for things, but not even revving the graphics cards to me is inexplicable at, at that stage, or not even updating the processors and the Mac Mini is just inexplicable at this point. And that's the sort of thing that Apple absolutely has to fix. So it's both keeping current with the existing models or end of life in them, just saying we're, we have no interest in these anymore and taking them off the market. Because right. I think that's fair to customers. But otherwise, it's making those versions that even though they only appeal to 1% of the 1%, Apple considers them to be super important and wants to keep them because like like you said, like a Bugatti Chiron, that's the aspiration for everybody. Right. And it's an investment and just servicing those people, I think, is more and more important. One path that really isn't clear to me of where they might go with it is the USB-C on, on MacBook Pros because... You know, not to say that it's a it's a failed failed platform or a, or I/O device, but there's issues with it that don't seem to be getting better. And I know that uh, you know Apple feels like if they put their weight behind it, they can make it legitimate and make it a thing that uh, is supported by all the hard drive manufacturers. And and uh, you know dongles will only be a temporary solution, but uh, it's it's been a while now, and I get the impression, not having updated mine, that still most other people are having some struggles with it, and there might continue to be some long-term USB-C struggles. Do you see a solution in the, in the long run for it? We're not going to go back to the big, chunky USB, are we? No, I mean, there's, so there's two issues with it. One is that USB-C itself um, is... It failed in a significant way, and that is USB-C and Thunderbolt 3 are technically the same interconnect, but not the same cable, and that causes a lot of confusion. So if you have a Thunderbolt 3 drive, it's not the same as USB-C, and USB-C is not the same as Thunderbolt 3, even though they might look identical. Um, and that's a problem. It's, like you, it, it's fine to have um, a standard, but that standard has to be obvious mm-hmm. uh, to everybody. The other thing is, I think the problem with USB-C is that it hit the mainstream. Uh, anyone, uh, you know, you probably can relate to this, but I've had to deal with dongles my entire life. Yeah. It's just, uh, I went from Firewire 400 to Firewire 800, d- dual DVI dongles, separate DVI dongles. Yeah, yeah. I've just always had dong- Ethernet, dong- I just always had them. And so this is just the latest in a series of dongles for me. And it really makes no difference because I know eventually those dongles will go away, but there's no way I can retrofit more modern faster, more flexible ports onto an old computer. But what happened is that this didn't just hit things that are nerdy, like FireWire and DVI. It hit mainstream consumers with USB. So you have suddenly, instead of the 1%, you have the 99% of people who have to carry dongles now. And that's a huge difference. 
And like I said, they're not, it's not obvious what's a Thunderbolt 3 or what's a USB-C peripheral uh, to a lot of people or cable or can support the data output or throughput or what you need to connect, what can provide power, what can't provide power. All of that is a, is a bit of a mess. So I think it is great that we have these ports. And in a year or two, um, if you don't have them, you'll be like, ah, why am I moving this stuff around like a cave person? But now it's, it's just a lot of pain. Like I'm talking to you right now on a 2017 uh, 13-inch MacBook Pro with a uh, a hub plugged into USB to Thunderbolt 3, sorry, that then has both my USB Pre 2 uh, audio interface for my XLR microphone plugged into it. And when I do podcasts, video podcasts, it also has my webcam plugged into it. And that's, you know, that that's this whole other second breakout box that I didn't used to mm-hmm. have to deal with. And the funniest, worst, most tragic part of this is if I buy an iPhone today, it doesn't plug into the MacBook that I buy today. Right. And that was like forgivable last year because <laughs> the MacBook sh- was supposed to ship earlier. It shipped late and it would have shipped in a world where the iPhone was coming out later, but it it didn't. And now like a year later, it's just, uh, why do I have a cable that I can't plug into my computer? At the very least, include the USB-A adapter the way you include the 3.5 millimeter headphone adapter. Yeah, that's the only thing that I can't see what path Apple will take like I, with everything else they discuss about professionals in the future i can see how we're going to get to the place where any type of pro however you define it will find something for them except this one is is still uh, kind of an ongoing challenge and yeah I, I mean even i i i don't want to have to know when i'm using thunderbolt and when i'm yeah. using USB-C. I think you know i don't know i'm gonna have to kind of wait and see where that ends up going in the long run no, I agree. I mean, for mobile, it sounds like every manufacturer wants to just get rid of every physical button and every port. And there were rumors that a, not Apple, but another major manufacturer was going to get rid of the uh, USB-C port on their phone, the way Apple got rid of it on the um, Apple TV. But they couldn't figure out wireless recovery yet. And you absolutely need wireless recovery if you're going to get rid of the sort of the technical port. But it's, it sounds like that's the way we're going. And the MacBook, the 12-inch one, was a first step that way to a wireless world. But you know, most people just aren't ready for that yet. And then I think the one area we didn't touch on, just because maybe because I don't use it that much, but is um, iPads, which is yep. certainly something that some people treat as a professional tool. And iPad Pros have made that you know much more feasible. That uh, the software is caught up a lot. Uh, multitasking is great. The pencil input is amazing. Um, I the only challenge is that I, I, in my world, like things I happen to do, it's definitely not going to replace my Mac at any point. And I realize that's a spectrum. Some people totally can get their work done. Um, and uh, th- there's always kind of this push and pull, I'm sure, internally for Apple of um, deciding where to allocate resources and that there might feel like there's momentum behind the iPad Pro but or iPad in general, and obviously the iPhone. But it, since PCs are a shrinking market, you know, why, why dedicate the time to it? How do you see iPads integrating more into the professional life? Are they... Am I right about them not taking over at any point? So Phil Schiller has this wonderful slide, and I think he's used it publicly, where he says, you know, the Apple Watch's job is to become so good that it puts pressure on iPhone, and iPhone's job is to become so good that it puts pressure on iPad, and iPad's job is to become so good that it puts pressure on the Mac, and then the Mac's job is to become so good that it puts that pressure back down to iPad, back down to iPhone, back down to Apple Watch. And that's sort of the way Apple looks at it, that all of these devices are internally competing to be the best damn computers they can be. And iPad is wonderful for, like, I remember when I got the first, or was it maybe the second iPad Pro, and it could handle three streams of 4K video. And when I tried to do that on the iMac, the 12-inch, 
iMac that has Windows, uh, sorry, that has my uh, Intel Core M on it, it, it just broke down and cried. It just would not do it at all. Mm-hmm. And the advances Apple's making in silicon at the ultra portable uh, size scale is just remarkable. So I think for people who are photographers and who are into video, but really just want that flat canvas to take around with them uh, and to work on in coffee shops and on planes and things like that, then that becomes a phenomenal choice. And I know um, there are visual effects artists who do all their storyboarding and uh, do all their design work just on iPad Pro. There are architects who, because they're so tired of celebrities saying, but what if we had that in green? You know, they would just give them the iPad and they could see their building and they'd tap a few things and they'd see it in green. That it it becomes almost like this um, technology that allows you to connect not just with a, a glass screen, but with the people on the other side of the creative process that it sort of still fits in between. And it just, it remains to be seen how aggressive Apple is with their silicon and with their form factors. Because there's nothing to say an iPad Pro couldn't come in a clamshell and be the next 12-inch MacBook. Um, So it just, it depends on how far and how fast Apple wants to push that. But I think for the ultra high end, there is no replacement for a Mac Pro or an iMac Pro. Uh, And for ultimate portability, there's no replacement for for an iPhone. But just the iPhone screen is just not big enough for some things. And as much as I love that leather that leather uh, carrying bag, and taking an iMac Pro with me to a co- to a Starbucks isn't great. And I think in, in the mm-hmm. middle you have sort of iPad Pro and MacBook Pro competing for whether you want more power and more portability at any given moment, which is more important to you. Maybe to, to sum it all up, the way that that I think the more professionals should be looking at it is that you maybe want to make a little list of like what are the things that the machine I'm shopping for can't do that I need it to do. And when I look at a lot of the machines out there, even at lower prices from Apple, um, most of them can handle all of it. Uh, they, you know, you may need to go to an iMac pro for some of the ultimate performance. If you have something that leans on, uh, multi cores a lot, uh, then, you know, you might want a, a little more, but many things can be very well handled by all of the consumer level options out there, which is Strange. I mean, I remember how strange it was to first consider an iMac as my professional computer because for years I was trained to believe that, you know, I needed the Mac Pro. There's no yeah. way I could consider myself a professional or a photographer if I had this, uh, you know, amateur iMac computer. Um, and that is not the case anymore at all. Um, even, even older um, full-size iMacs still perform extremely well and uh, you know, I think that's something Apple's always been good at is giving you a machine that's going to last and be useful a few years down the road. Yeah, and as we get more into these um, mixed, like these nearline workflows and where you have fast local and you know voluminous cloud storage, I know a photographer who takes her iPad with her because she doesn't want to be disturbed with regular computing tasks when she's on the road, and she just takes all her photos and loads them into her iPad and uses Lightroom Mobile to make a set of adjustments, and that all just syncs back to the iMac she has at home. And when she goes there, she might do some more adjustments, but it means that she can be in the moment and be out in the desert, you know, like in Colorado or somewhere and taking all the photos she wants uh, without worrying about a computer, but still having everything available to her when she gets back home. I love the idea of that. I wish I could make that work. <laughs> I know. Right? Seems, seems like the dream. But yeah. Uh, yeah, no, thank you so much for joining me, Renee. This has been fantastic. And if anybody isn't listening to Vector already, it's a great way to get a quick little injection of what's happening right now. Has it has it been hard to keep up with daily? That seems really intimidating to me. Yeah, I mean, I went daily because it felt like 
uh, there was always something happening. And if I waited a week, something else had happened and I'd miss out on having some of the conversation. All of this started with a friend of mine at WWDC, which is Apple's developer conference, saying that we just never had time to have this, the conversations we wanted. So I wanted yeah. to figure out a way of making a virtual bar or corridor or hallway or something or coffee shop where we could just chat and daily seemed good for that. But now that I'm doing video too, it's just, it's, I don't know how you guys do it. It's just so much work that I've, I've slipped down to three <laughs> yeah. episodes a week um but we'll see how that goes no that's fair but i mean the video the video is going to help a lot i think too like uh i've talked quite a bit on this show about the challenges of getting the same numbers in podcasting as on youtube like youtube just amplifies insanely more than podcasting does and i i prefer podcasts like i I really enjoy them a little bit more in a way but uh it's just really hard to get that same reach and i think if you are blending both i think you're going to do great with it wow thank you sir Awesome. Thanks, Renee. Game over.